0: Before we go to the word together, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. So I invite you to pray with me uh, as I lead us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we know that you are God. You are the one who made us and we are yours. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. So God, as your people, as your sheep, we come before you and ask that you would help us walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called in Christ, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, that we would learn to bear with one another in love and that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God, we know that kind of unity is a gift from your spirit and not something that we can produce, and so we ask that you would work in our midst. And this morning, we bring specifically before you those in our uh, church family and connected to our church family who are bearing particular burdens. This morning, we think of uh, Ron Shearer, for Sally Evett, for Richard McNamee, Jerry Mallard. God, I pray for our brothers and sisters that as they struggle with uh, physical illness, that you would be their hope, that they would know in a very fresh way what it means that when we are weak, you are strong. We think of Dr. Wren this morning as he and his wife grieve the loss of his mother-in-law. God, comfort them, and God, I pray that uh, you'll encourage the family at this time of loss, even as they prepare for the funeral this weekend. God, we think of our brothers and sisters at Coastal Community Church just down the road from us here. I pray, God, that uh, they will preach the gospel faithfully. Thank you for Pastor Chris, God, and even the way he reached out and welcomed uh, me and our family when we moved here. God, I pray for their their congregation, that they would show clearly the life and love of Jesus to our community. Thank you for Vice President Pence, and God, I ask that you would protect him. Uh, Protect him uh, physically and spiritually. God, protect him from temptation, give him a heart and a life that reflect the character of Christ, give him wisdom as he helps lead our nation. And God, we pray for missionaries serving you today in Kolkata, Indian, India. And God, I ask as uh, I've heard even this week of just surprising fruit there, God, that people whose eyes are blind would see, that they would come to know Christ. And Father, we pray for the Alamon family, for Chris and Maggie. God, I thank you for uh, their service here. I pray that you would encourage them in, in their walk with Christ as well as in their discipleship. I pray for Lucinda and Isabel, God, that they would uh, be followers of Jesus, that they would come to know him and love him. And I pray for Chris and Maggie. God, protect uh, their marriage. Give them grace and kindness toward one another. And as we come to your word now, God, I ask that you would help us be moved, and truly see Christ, that people who are far from you would draw near to you, and that you would reward those who diligently seek you. And so, God, this morning we ask that you would open the eyes here of those who are seeking you, and I pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew again, and the book of Matthew will be in Matthew chapter 2. We'll read the first 12 verses this morning of Matthew 2. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. As we uh, work through this together this morning, we'll see that true encounters with Christ always move God's people to worship. True encounters with Christ always move God's people to worship. I'll begin reading in Matthew 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, by another way. My eight-year-old said to me on the way into church this morning, she said, Dad, last week it felt like Christmas. We were learning about Jesus being born, and I said, well, if you thought last week was like Christmas, you'll really think this week is like Christmas, as we get to the we three kings of Orient are. But what we're going to see here this morning in these 12 verses is that Matthew reads almost like a storyline. Uh, maybe so. One of my favorite book series and movie series is *The Lord of the Rings* by J.R.R. R. Tolkien, and and uh, he reads kind of this this fantasy, this kind of magical world, or. Uh, maybe if you're more a fan of the Marvel movie or comic strips, it almost reads like that. Like there are these men, and they, they are searching for something, and they spot a sign in the sky. And then uh, they see this sign, and they wonder what it could mean. And so then they begin to follow the sign, and then a prophecy appears to them, and the prophecy leads them to someone. And this someone is a king who will, who will come and rescue them from all of their problems. I mean, it sounds like just this unbelievable story. But as we do this, we're going to meet some uh, characters along the way. They're the wise men here, but of course, there's the, there's the bad guy too. I mean, every story needs a villain. And we've got Herod here for our villain this morning. And so as we look at this, we're really going to look at the, the main characters involved. And first, we're going to see that the wise men are seekers. The wise men are seekers, and we see this in the first couple of verses. Now, the way this appears in our Bible is we just track straight from the uh, end of chapter 1 right into the beginning of chapter 2, and it afear- appears that those things are one right after the other. But actually, there's, there's a brief period of time in here, really of a couple of years. So at the end of Matthew 1, Jesus is born, and by this time, he's probably about my son's age, maybe two, something like that. And So there's some period of time, and Joseph and his family are here in Bethlehem. Well, the end of Matthew 1, you may remember, is focused on the virgin birth of Christ. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7. Well, all through here, Matthew is showing how the prophecies in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ, and here we come to a different prophecy, a, promise, a prophecy from Micah chapter 5 that predicts that this child not only will be born of a virgin, but that he will be born in the town of Bethlehem. Now, you may or may not be familiar with uh, the land of Israel, but we've got a, a map here before us. And you kind of, kind of see it runs north to south, kind of a long vertical country. And in the top there, top here, is what we call the region of Galilee. Uh, it's named Galilee because it's around the Sea of Galilee. But this is where Jesus is going to spend most of his life in ministry. So the town of Nazareth is in the north, and this is where Jesus is going to spend most of his time. But at the beginning of his life, he's going to be born in the south in Israel, in the town of Bethlehem. So we're going to zoom in just a little bit here, and you can see Jerusalem on the map, and then also Bethlehem. You got those arrows there kind of showing you where these these areas are. And so Bethlehem is about five miles, small town outside of Jerusalem. So pretty close, but, uh, but not quite in the main capital. But it is in southern area of Israel known as Judah or Judea. Matthew tells us where this is going to happen, but he also tells us when it's going to happen. He says, in the days of Herod the king. Now, this may not mean a lot to you today, but what we know from history is that this is in the year 4 BC. So uh, roughly 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years and some change, Jesus is born in this town in Bethlehem. Now, this is important because what is Matthew establishing? He's establishing that Jesus is the king, the heir to whose throne? to David's throne. And so he's demonstrating that not only is he in the line of David, but he's also from the town of David, from Bethlehem. Well, As we come along here, we meet some men that we haven't met before, what we call, uh, often call the wise men. The wise men, we say there are three, we don't really know how many there are, we say there are three because there are three gifts often, but they're also what we call the magi, and that comes from the word that's used here, literally it's magi, it's just a word that describes who these men are. They're essentially astrologers, dream interpreters. So they're scholars of a sort, but they're not biblical scholars, they're kind of mystical, they're actually pagans. So they're pagan people from the far east. And so as they've traveled, they've come from the east, from Persia, and they're coming to Israel, and they're following these signs, as they said the heavens, they see these signs in the heavens. They don't know what they mean, but they're kind of these connections there for them. Well, as they come along from Persia, this, this reminds us that there was a Jew who was a famous prophet who went there. Do you remember who that was? Daniel. We don't really know if these men trace back to Daniel, but there's a chance that part of the reason that they're even searching for this is because God placed some of his people there in their land. Well, here we are a few centuries later and God is sending these men now to Israel, to the town of Bethlehem. Well, God uses a star to lead these men because these men are people who study the heavens. They're not astronomers, they're astrologers. So they're kind of spiritists about this. Well, verse 2 records the only words of these men, these magi, and these words are important because they're an offense to Herod. So, who's Herod? Herod is the king. So, these wise men come in front of the king, and they have a question for him. They're asking the king where the king is. Now, this is a little bit of a surprise to Herod and a little bit offensive to Herod, and so they ask him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, they don't ask him Where is the one who will become the king of the Jews? They ask him, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They're here announcing, Herod, you ain't the king. The king is here and you are not the king. Well, you can imagine this is not happy news to Herod. But this is not the only place that we see this title applied to Christ. The wise men call him King of the Jews. Do you remember where else in the life of Christ we see this title? It's actually at the end of his life. It's placed over his cross It's a sign of mockery, actually, then. But this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So at the beginning and end of his life, we have these kind of bookend titles, and it's meant there as mockery, but it's ironically a declaration of the truth that Jesus Christ is the rightful King of Israel. And the wise men are looking for the rightful king. Well, I think there's some key points here for us today. One is that these wise men weren't what we would consider spiritually wise. In other words, they're not yet people who have the the gift of the Spirit within them, and they're not seeking Jesus because they're so much wiser. They're they're looking for Him, but they don't truly understand there's a disconnect between their world and, and the person they're actually seeking. They're kind of, they're following their passion, their fascination with this area of study, but there's a connection between their area of study and what's actually happening in the world. So God supernaturally is using their passion, their gifts, their expertise to draw them to Christ. I mean, as First John four nineteen puts it, we love Him because He first loved us. It means men are seeking Christ, but God is seeking them. But there's something else here too, and I think it's important, maybe a lesson for us in sharing our faith. I mean, if I were choosing the ideal people to go and look for the Christ child, to look for the Messiah, to look for the king, I wouldn't choose foreigners who don't even know this king. I wouldn't choose pagans who don't know the true God. I'd choose the scribes and chief priests. That's who I'd choose. Because they're the people who have actually been looking in the word for this person, but that's not who God chooses. God uses people that are far from him to come find and worship Christ. As we come to the Bible, we have different accounts of the birth of Christ. The two clearest are in, in Matthew and Luke. In Luke's gospel, we see Jewish shepherds that come and worship Christ. Well, they're Jews, but they're not the cream of the crop. They're the outcasts in their own culture. And here in Matthew, we find an even different message that it's outsiders, foreigners, pagans who come. And they're the ones who worship Christ. And how is it that God draws them to do this? He uses two things. One, he uses an area of interest in their culture, study of the heavens. And then he uses his word, this prophecy, and he uses these two things together to draw them to worship Christ. So what happens here? What lesson is there for us here? There's this appreciation, there's this appropriation of culture, and that's combined with clear revelation from God. And Christians, we, As Christians, we often have kind of one of two reactions to culture. One is there are those of us who see it and recognize, okay, there's some things here that aren't consistent with what we see taught in God's Word, and so we completely avoid it. Kind of isolationist. On the other end of the spectrum, we have people who say, hey, that's cool, and they dive in wholeheartedly, and they never even think to question it. But what we have here is something a little bit different. You have God seemingly using an aspect of culture, not embracing it wholeheartedly, but using it to draw these men to Christ, an area of interest in their life that then he uses and uses his word to open their eyes to who Jesus is. It's pretty cool how he does this. So we often tend to only challenge culture, only accept culture. What God teaches us here is that we use the culture actually as a bridge to lead people to Christ. Well, we've seen that these men are seekers, and now we're going to meet our second main character, and that's Herod the pretender. And we're going to see a prophecy with this pretender. Well, the text says that Herod the king is troubled. Well, of course he's troubled. There's some king in his land, and he has no idea who this king is. He's worried about this. These men walk into his court, and they have the audacity to ask him where the king is, well, then as verse 3 tells us, he's not the only one who's troubled. We see that all Jerusalem is troubled with him. Now, this is not because Herod is such a beloved king. It's actually because Herod is such a terrible king. You see, the whole town of Jerusalem is worried because Herod is worried, and when Herod gets worried, people die. And so they know if Herod, the paranoid king, is worried, somebody's going to die because it means terrible response from Herod. Now, there are various Herods throughout the Bible as you go through the New Testament. This is the Herod known as Herod the Great. He earned this title because he was known for being a capable administrator and particularly a capable builder. He was someone who built large monuments, large fortresses. In fact, he's the king who led, led to the rebuilding of, of, of uh, Solomon's temple wasn't quite as glorious, quite as grand, but even the temple he built was just massive in scale and beautiful. So he's known as Herod the Great because of his architectural achievements. He's the rebuilder kind of of the glory of Israel. But Herod wasn't great in just that sense. He was also paranoid. He is freaked out by the smallest thing. In fact, he's not a Jew at all. So he's the king of Israel, but he's not a Jewish king. He's an imposter. He's a pretender. He doesn't even belong there. He's an outsider appointed to be king by the Roman Senate. He doesn't even deserve really to be on the throne that he's sitting on, but as soon as he was appointed king in 40 BC, the first thing he did was kill everyone whom he suspected of even remotely being a threat, so he kills all of his enemies. His way of dealing with opposition is to execute them, but his cruelty didn't stop there. He was known for being an oppressive tax master. He would collect taxes. You don't build monuments and and fortresses and temples like he built without money. He would literally take money, take goods to build these things. But beyond this, how did he build these things? It wasn't by hiring workers. It was by taking slaves out of homes. He would go into homes in Israel and just take men and force them to build. So the temple in Jerusalem, as beautiful as it was, was built in the back of slave labor. Herod was a cruel man. But he wasn't cruel to just the Israelites. He had a favorite wife, which wasn't great for her because he murdered her. And then he murdered two of his own sons. In fact, Caesar Augustus said of Herod, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son, because he was such a paranoid man. He feared anyone who might threaten him or who he feared might, might, might threaten him. Well, Herod is paranoid and he has an object of his paranoia, and so he brings in the chief priests and scribes and he asks them the same question that we've already seen. The wise men come and they ask, where will the king of the Jews be born? And now Herod comes in and he asks, where is the king of the Jews? Where will he be born? Same question, slightly different motive. Wise men want to know so they can go worship the king. Herod wants to know so he can eliminate his opposition. And the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees answer with a common formula. They say, it is written. Well, this is a reference to the authority of Scripture. It's a reference to the Old Testament. These men know the Word, and they quote Micah 5.2 in verse 6, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, isn't that interesting? The minute we hear about this king, this ruler, what kind of a ruler is he? He's a shepherd. He's not like other kings. He's different. You think of kingly omnipotence, kingly power, kingly authority, but this king is a shepherd. Kind of the the lowest of the manual laborers in this culture. And I don't know if the the irony of this rings in Herod's ear like it might ring for us today. But you have Herod the king, the puppet king of the Roman Empire, the pretender king, the one who always exercises his power in a way that's intended to do him good that's intended to build monuments to his greatness, that's intended to abuse and manipulate and take advantage of those under his care. And we hear a prophecy, the real king ain't like that king. The real king is a shepherd king who will care for his people. He's different than Herod. You see, for centuries, God's people have looked for this king, the coming king, the one who would be a king but also be a shepherd. In 2 Samuel 5 verse 2, God promises that David is a picture of this eternal king. The Lord said to David, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And now this king is here. Micah 5 tells us the shepherd king is coming. Jesus, the perfect shepherd king, rules his people like a good shepherd cares for his sheep. What is it that oppressive human rulers do? They take They demand, they domineer, they exercise authority cruelly without regard for the welfare of their people. But the king as God designed it, leaders as God designed it, were to be people who would look out for their sheep. Who would be shepherd rulers. And we get to Matthew chapter 9 and Jesus looks out on his subjects. Crowds. And Matthew tells us that he looks on them with what? With pride? With pride? thoughts of his own authority no he looks on them with compassion because they are like sheep without a shepherd the king is here but he is no ordinary king he is a shepherd king moved with compassion for his sheep he's not someone who will lord it over people he's not some domineering authority this king is a good king he's the perfect authority one that every human longs for One who is powerful enough to deliver us from our greatest enemy, but one who is good enough to never use his authority in a way that will harm us. This is amazing that the omnipotent creator God, the one who spoke the universe into being by the word of his power, is also the one who comes near and Hebrews tells us is not ashamed to be called our brother. Jesus is a good king. He's a shepherd king. He's one who cares for his people with compassion. So, brothers and sisters, there is no problem in your life too great for Jesus to deliver you from. He is an omnipotent king who rules all things. But there is no problem too small for Jesus to care for because Jesus is a shepherd, compassionate king. In Jesus, we see both the greatness, the power of God, and the goodness, the love of God meet perfectly powerful enough to deliver us from any enemy, and good enough to care about us in our smallest problems. Jesus is a king with absolute power, but also absolute goodness. He's a king worthy of our trust. I mean, Herod the king demanded sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice from his people, and Jesus comes in John 10, tells us, came to sacrifice himself for his sheep, he always sacrificially cares for his people. Well, Herod is a pretender, not just as king, but he also pretends to be a worshiper. Verse 8, when you have found the child, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. It's pretending. He's not really going to worship the child. He's plotting to take out his rival. Well, the rest of chapter 2, which we'll get to next week, tells us more of this story. Not only does Herod plot, he acts. And he attempts to eliminate his rival by killing all of the children in Bethlehem to destroy God's plan. Well, imagine that you're not sitting here in 2018. Imagine that you're in this fourth century BC. And Herod is plotting to kill this, all the children in this small town. If you were a small Jewish child hearing this story for the first time at this moment, you would be incredibly tense. Do these babies have any chance? Can this child survive genocide? It's at this point where the tension builds in the story. All of this buildup, the genealogy, the announcement of the birth of the king, will this young one die immediately? And then we remember Psalm 2. Do you remember Psalm 2? There we read that the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. I mean, the most powerful rulers, the most powerful empires in history set themselves against God and his anointed one, Christ. And what does the one who sits in the heaven do? He laughs at them. Their power means nothing to him. Their power pales in comparison to his omnipotence. They can do nothing. He who sits in the heaven laughs. I mean, for God's people, there is no such thing as holy hand-wringing. Kingdoms come and fall, but the church will remain. You can have a good Congress or a bad Congress, a good president or a poor one. It doesn't matter because God's people don't depend upon the power and goodness of the people around us, but on the goodness and grace of our sovereign God who rules over all things. I mean, the kings of the earth may set themselves and think they rule, but princes, the king's horses, all the king's men, they can't stand against the king of heaven. He's infinite in his power, infinite in his grace. If we believe in the kingship of Christ, we don't have to tremble when our earthly kings set themselves against the Lord. Heron's just a pretender, but now we're going to move back and look again at the, at the wise men, the magi, because they move from ones who are seeking Christ to true worshipers of Christ. Magi arrive in Jerusalem, and they're still looking They naturally assume that the king will be born here because it's the capital city. Now remember, they're not necessarily students of Scripture, they're students of the heavens, but they show up here and they ask where he will be born and they're told to go to Bethlehem. As they leave, the same star goes before them and leads them directly to Christ. When they see the star confirming what they'd heard the king tell them, go to Bethlehem, the text says that they rejoiced with great joy. This isn't like a sense of like, Happiness. This is an exuberant shouting, jumping for joy. They can't believe it. They've had this long quest, hundreds and hundreds of miles, and they arrive here, and the star and scripture converge at this point. This is a miraculous moment. And we see in these wise men the, the convergence of two things. On the one hand, you have them trying to figure out where this star is leading them, that's kind of unclear. On the other hand, you have this very clear prophecy from the Word of God. It's leading them to Bethlehem. And these two things meet. And so what happens is you have kind of this subjective search for the leading of God. And on the other hand, you have very clear revelation from the Word of God. And it works the same way in our lives too. Do you ever have this moment? Should I buy this house or not buy this house? Should I go to school here or should I go to school there? Should I marry this man or not marry this man? And so there are things where God probably is not going to drop a lightning bolt with a message from the Lord saying do this or don't do this. That's not typically how it works. And so we're trying to figure these things out. And what we see here is the things that subjectively we're trying to figure out always are consistent with what God has already told us clearly in His Word. So for instance, God might lead you to wrestle through whether you should marry someone or not, but he won't ever lead you to wrestle with whether you should inhabit with that person before you marry them. Because on the one hand, God has been clear about something, and on the other hand, there's something that's less clear. His clear revelation is always consistent with the way he works subjectively in our lives. Well, God has taken these pagans who don't know Christ, and he's made them worshipers of the true king, Jesus Christ, And yet there's a sad thing here too. It's not just Herod. There's someone else in this story who misses Christ, isn't there? Remember, Herod Herod is consulting with the religious people, the the experts, the the ones who know more about the Word of God than anyone else. And he asks them. I mean, the wise men don't even know where to go. And he asks the scribes and chief priests, and they're the ones who know, and they tell them to go to Bethlehem, but what do they do? They sit in Jerusalem and miss him. I mean, the most religious devoted people miss the fact that the king is here. John 1 tells us that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Yet these pagan astrologers did. Anyone who comes to God through faith in Christ, God will accept that person. It doesn't matter if you are the most religious or least religious person. What qualifies you to be a follower of the king is not whether you know the most about him. It is whether you bow before him and worship him as these wise men did. You see, the experts are sitting back in Jerusalem, smug in their expertise. And the pagans are at the feet of Jesus, worshiping the king. How do you know if you've truly encountered Jesus Christ? always leads us to worship him well it's common practice in the ancient near east to offer gifts when you approach someone great kind of like the next level of a housewarming gift they brought frankincense as kind of a shiny a minty gum that was from a tree that could be used to uh, freshen something or sometimes used for balm or medicine myrrh is a spice or a perfume often anointed often used for anointing someone who was dead gold. I assume you know what gold is. Well, in the end, it may have been these gifts that enabled Mary, Joseph, and their family to get away to Egypt, that paid their way, perhaps, to travel to Egypt. But seeing and savoring Jesus, worshiping the King, always leads us to submit our lives to Him. And submitting our lives to Christ, like the wise men, moves us to tangibly demonstrate the fact that God owns us and our stuff. Like the wise man who gave gifts, or like the widow in the temple who gave her two mites to the Lord, or like you get into the, the, the church in Acts chapter 2, and they're, they're giving generously. The fact that Jesus has given all for us, sacrificed himself for his sheep, moves us to be generous in response. It teaches us that our stuff isn't our stuff all we are and all we have belongs to Christ. It changes the way we think about this world and the stuff in this world. We're not investing for the kingdom of earth. We're investing for the kingdom of heaven. It changes the way we think about kingdoms, and it changes the way we think about our stuff. And so, brothers and sisters, as we come to a close this morning, true encounters with Christ always lead us to worship Him. And if you're here and you're the most devoted religious person, but you've never truly encountered God through faith in Christ, you could be like those scribes and those chief priests, knowing the Word and yet missing Jesus. And if you are the person here who feels the farthest from God, like pagan men from the East, Jesus' grace is enough for you too. So let's respond to the Word of God now. Repentance and faith i will give you a moment to Talk to God there in your seat, and then I'll close this in prayer. Let's talk to God now. God, we thank you for your word and that it is good for us to make us like Christ. God, I think of this morning as we see men who knew your word well, the chief priests, men who knew very little, but those responded to truth and and worshiped Christ. God, I pray that this morning you would make us true worshipers of Christ and know that you are a good king, a great king who can handle any difficulty but good and caring about us. And so, God, now, as we, as we respond to your word, I pray that you would move among us by your spirit. Amen. Well, we're going to give you a chance to respond uh, tangibly in any way that God would lead you. Uh, if God is opening your eyes to faith in Christ, we would love to talk with you about that. If he's leading you to become a part of this congregation through committed church membership or perhaps to follow the Lord in baptism, uh, we would love to talk with you about that as well. Uh, in just a moment, we'll sing as we prepare to respond to the word. And invite you. We'll be down front. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you if there's any way that we can encourage you. Would you stand please? We'll sing as we